welcome to the Masters of Social Gastronomy podcast featuring Sarah Lohman of fourpoundsflower.com and Jonathan Soma of the Brooklyn Brainery. What are we talking about today, Soma? Chocolate. Chocolate. Delicious. I'm going to talk about the history of chocolate, where it comes from physically, botanically, how you make it, how it became popular in Europe, how it came back to America. You are up talking like you're talking to a child in a terrifying <laughs> way. I was just making a list of things I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about the beginning up through the 19th century, and then you're going to take it to the modern era, right? I guess that's true. Right? Once we decided, Once we decided that chocolate was something other than a gross drink that tasted like sand. Yeah, that's important. It started as a gross drink that tasted like sand before it became the luscious chocolate bar. And a luscious chocolate bar, and milk chocolate, and white chocolate, and mint chocolate. That's that's my jam today. Mint chocolate? Predates milk chocolate. I find that disgusting. It was what they had before they knew how to make chocolate taste awesome, and before they knew how to put milk inside. They were mm. like, let's put mints in it, and everyone's like, what a good idea. I don't know when they made the ice cream, though. So, oh, mint chocolate chip ice cream? Yeah. Mmm. But I feel like those flavors have been best friends ever since. Gross. That's huh. my personal opinion. Personal opinion only. That's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Where should we begin? Are we ready to begin? We're ready to begin. Let's go. So I'm going to take you away. Where are we going? We're going to the tropical jungles of Central America. How do you feel about that? I feel good. And in those jungles, we're going to find a cacao tree. How do you spell that? Is that a cocoa tree? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... Okay, in American English, because the, there's no, like, formal phraseology. So in American English, cacao, C-A-C-A-O, that refers to the plant in all of its products before it's processed, okay? And then after processing, whether it's in a liquid or a solid state, then it's chocolate. Mm? Got Makes it. sense? Wait, when's it cocoa? It's, in, at least, again, this is, none of this is, like, formalized. There's no laws. No one's going to burst in here if we use it incorrectly right through the door behind you. Yes. Cocoa is only the powdered stuff, the powdered dry variety of it. Okay? After processing. Right, which you're going to talk about more exactly what that means, after processing. So cacao is when it's on the tree. And these trees grow in Central America. They're a tropical tree. They now grow on plantations, but they actually do best when they're in the jungle because they do best when they have half rotten plant stuffs in the jungle floor because that encourages midges, little tiny flying insects to spawn, and those pollinate the flowers. So what's kind of crazy about a cacao tree, which a lot of botanical gardens have, there's one at the National Botanical Garden in DC, there's one at the Brooklyn Botanical Garden, the flowers grow straight out of the side of the trunk. What? Yeah. It's called cauliflowery. And it actually grows hundreds of flowers in these little, like, poofs out of the side of the trunk. And only, like, 1% to 3% of these hundreds of flowers were about fruit. And out of these flowers, the fruit grows like yellow, bright yellow footballs right out of the side of the trunk. It's really weird. So you've got these like explosions of flowers and you've got these then these big yellow football fruits that come straight out of the sides of the trunk. They don't hang like you imagine a European fruit tree does, which was a problem because when European explorers came and then described these cacao trees and they went home and these descriptions went to illustrators, the illustrators were like, no, no, no you must be mistaken that's not how fruit grows and so a lot of the early illustrations we have talking like 15th century illustrations of cacao trees are completely inaccurate because the illustrators just thought the explorers were wrong in how they describe cacao trees which i think is kind of funny so that is what a cacao tree is and what it looks like and where it comes from it is an american plant so because it's an american plant it was first used by Native Americans, and we know that the Maya were the first ones to use cacao. So there are three reasons that we know the Maya uh, used cacao first out of the Mesoamerican cultures. One, we've identified the glyph that is the word for chocolate in their culture. Two, through bromine, the alkali that's in chocolate is really distinctive. It's uncommon. So there's great new technology. It was actually one of my favorite like new sciencey food history tools where they can analyze pieces of pottery and look for 
just microscopic little things like these alkalides on this powdery. So that we've traced pots in our culture that have theobromine in it. And because theobromine is not in a lot of things, we can say, okay, they're using chocolate. The third reason is kind of crazy. So in the Yucatan Peninsula, they have these things called cenotes. And the Yucatan is, is quite arid. Have you ever been to the Yucatan? Never. Me never neither. But you love these things. These I are love like your these favorite things. Thing. And the, the Yucatan has a limestone shelf. And sometimes this limestone shelf caves in. And when the limestone shelf caves in, it falls through to a lower water table. Okay? So it's arid on top. And then when it falls through to this lower water table, it creates these microenvironments that are tropical underneath. It's like a baby oasis. Yeah, like a baby oasis, but even more so, because if it were on the surface, it would still be fairly arid. But since it's underneath, it becomes this, well, potentially a tropical jungle. What the Maya were doing is because they had this vast cultural empire that expanded well beyond the Yucatan, is they were going into the central area. They're going into the other side of the Gulf Coast. And they were importing plants from the tropical rainforests, carrying them back to the Yucatan and planting them in the cenotes. That's amazing. It is amazing because scientists are looking at this and they're seeing this as one of the earliest signs of agriculture in this area. Beyond raising corn, raising other agricultural products, they were using these cenotes as sort of almost like pleasure gardens. Every plant in these cenotes are agriculturally significant products, including things like chocolate and also vanilla, which is one of the flavorings that they were using when they were making chocolate as a drink. So this is another reason that we know that the Maya were, they were the first culture to cultivate uh, chocolate as well, that they weren't just collecting it from the jungle, they were actually encouraging it to, to grow because it was so important to their culture. So me being me, we actually have some recipes mostly written on chocolate vessels about how to make uh, Maya chocolate. So I, I gave it a whirl. Literally? No. No. Yeah, Moyaninos, we, we usually associate with Mexican hot chocolate, but those are actually a Spanish tool that were introduced much later. But frothing of chocolate is something that was important to the Maya process. Okay, so how was chocolate made in ancient Mesoamerica? And really, up to a certain point, this process hasn't changed. So still to this very day, cacao pods, the big yellow footballs, are harvested, and then you crack them open, and inside there are the cacao seeds, which are covered in this like white custard-like substance that you can eat fresh. Did you know that? Have you ever had it? I really want to, but no, I've never Let's had it. Let's go on a trip. Okay. Take me there. Pack your bags. All right. Let's go. No, I desperately want to try it fresh because obviously that's something you can only have at the source. We don't import fresh. So there's this like white custardy-like material that sur surrounds the seeds. And the seeds are what we generally call today cacao nibs, okay? There's like a papery white shell and then inside is the nibs and the nibs is actually the the chocolate, the cacao itself. You crack open the yellow pot and then all this white goop and the surrounding the seeds and the seeds are pulled out. And then those are put into piles either in buckets or in piles covered with banana leaves. And that's still exactly how it's done today, thousands of years later. And they are left to ferment for a certain amount of time. I don't exactly know how long. So they're heated and they're fermented. Then they're taken out of the pile and the seeds are roasted and ground with a special type of matate, a special stone grounding tool. And a little heat is applied to that too to kind of melt the chocolate. So you have this kind of then ground melty substance. You take the ground chocolate and you mix it with water and then you add a different flavorings. The Maya liked their chocolate hot and the Aztecs actually preferred it cold. And they both like different flavorings. So you can actually get raw cacao beans online. They're kind of popular amongst raw foodists because they're, they contain high amounts of magnesium and they have good fats. When I was trying to recreate this recipe at home, I, I actually I just used my toaster to roast them. Good. And I used my food processor to grind them. Just as the Ancient Maya did. Maya did. I didn't have a special chocolate matate, and it just seemed... To be simpler, and then the kind of most important step after you mix it with the water 
is this frothing process. And before the Moye Neo, there are depictions of both Mayan Aztec women. They would take the liquid chocolate and they'd have these two special vessels that they would pour it back and forth between these vessels and it would froth the chocolate by aerating it. That's what I do when I make hot chocolate, but it's is only because it? the powder doesn't dissolve and oh, stirring is a pain. So, so you, you like blue blazer it? You I blue blazer it. I throw it back and forth between two different cups. And does that work? It... Do you get like a nice frothy top? Yeah, it gets real frothy. It's good. It's wonderful. Okay, I wouldn't so do it if it wasn't perfect. Pop quiz time. Ready? Go. Why do things froth? Science pop quiz. Destabilizing fats. Fats, but why else? What makes bubbles stay in place? Proteins. Proteins. That's exactly why things froth. That's why whipped cream froths. That's why egg whites create meringue. And that is even why we have bubbles in our spit. Because all those things have proteins. Don't make spitballs right now. That's so gross. Are we in fifth grade? It's part of the talk. It is part of the talk. So chocolate has a little bit of protein in it. Just a little bit. But just enough to froth. Unfortunately, no. not. So when I tried to froth this thing, I, okay, I looked at the pictures, and what I noticed is that the women would put one chocolate vessel on the floor, and they would hold one up. And so I was like, ah, great, I got this. I took two pots, nice big and wide, put one on my kitchen floor, and I poured the other one. And all I succeeded in doing was pour, pour chocolate all over my kitchen floor. It was a big mess. You needed an expert. And nothing frothed at all. So I was like, okay, what am I missing here? Clearly there's some ingredient that didn't get written down. So we found a cookbook from 1947 that was written by a Mexican woman for the American audience. It was really interesting because it had two columns and one was had all the recipes in Spanish and one was a actually not very good translation in English. She noted that almonds are usually added to the homemade chocolate as they give it a very good taste and also boiled egg yolks. These with the primary purpose of having the chocolate froth up upon being boiled. There you go. There Almonds you go. Or eggs. So even though this is 1947, several thousands of years <laughs> later, I actually thought that this, and, and post-Spanish too, I thought that this was a pretty good clue because the pre-European introduction, they wouldn't have had milk, okay, because there's no domesticated animals. And they wouldn't have had chickens, but eggs are something that they could have gotten from wild birds. So it seems like maybe there was some way that they're adding a little bit of extra protein to get this chocolate to froth. What did you find, Soma? I think almonds are from the old world. Yeah, almonds are old world too. So I was really trying to think what could you add that would have added froth that would have been in the new world. And my suspicion was maybe eggs. So I didn't do boiled egg yolks, but I did add an egg white and of course it frothed right. beautifully and immediately. So pouring back and forth was the ancient Mesoamerican way. The boyanillo, as I mentioned, which is the tool, it's, you know, it's kind of like... It's like a stick. With a bulbous end, and yeah. it's usually hand-carved out of wood. A lot of people have seen them, but then don't recognize them. Those are for frothing chocolate. That was invented by the Spanish with the explicit purpose of frothing chocolate. Okay, so what did this chocolate taste like? I guess I should talk about flavors of hot chocolate. Vanilla was a big flavor. Honey, they would add, which is very new world. There are a couple different flower flavors that are new world plants that we don't really know about, even in Northern America, that were big flavors. Chili was a big early flavor too. When I made my hot chocolate, I used vanilla and honey, but even with the honey, the flavor was shockingly bitter. And so when I first tasted it, I really didn't like it because I was expecting like the thick, creamy, fatty, Right. but this is just water, chocolate, vanilla, honey. But the more I drank it, the more I liked it. And I, they did drink it for pleasure and not just as medicine or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, it was ritualized as well, but it was also just sold all over the place too. And if you, it was kind of expensive, so, but they also had cheaper versions of it where they would actually use the husks of the, the cacao nib, like the husk of the seed pod, which has its own chocolatey taste. That, that could be made in a cheaper drink too. 
or to kind of stretch it. There's a contemporary version called Champorado, or Atole is the uh, vanilla version. So it was almost like a chocolate cornmeal pudding too. So everybody was consuming chocolate in one way or another, both in Maya and then later in Aztec culture. So it would have been kind of a treat depending on what level of the culture you're on. I realized the more I drank it, it, it's less like hot chocolate say, and it's more like contemporary coffee drinking culture. Because it was this kind of bitter drink that was an acquired taste, but it also kind of gave you a buzz. It was less about being sweet and more the fact that it was caffeinating and it was caloric and it kind of invigorated you in this like hot, rejuvenating drink. Do you drink it every day now? No. (laughs) All right. All right. And I think like the flavors too are really simple. Like when we think of quote unquote Mexican hot chocolate, we think of, you know, cinnamon, nutmeg, things like that. And those were also later westernized European, let's say, additions to it. But we'll get there because kind of talking about the expense, cacao beans were used as money in both Aztec and Maya culture. So for the Maya, if you wanted to buy a rabbit in the marketplace, that was 10 cacao beans. And I love this because we can adjust for inflation. For the Aztecs, which is approximately a thousand years later, a rabbit was 100 cacao beans. And for the Maya, if you wanted to buy a prostitute, it was about eight to 10 cacao beans according to how they agree. So whatever services you needed, those were cacao beans. So actually drinking hot chocolate not only cost you money if you're gonna buy it in the marketplace, but it was kind of like you know, lighting a cigar with a $20 bill that you were also consuming money when you were eating it. That's too. so badass. <laughs> I wish we made edible money these days. It's a, it's a little badass. I mean, what would happen if we ate money? Uh, I don't think it would taste so good. Though I heard that there was an ancient ruler that (laughs) drank a hell of a lot of hot chocolate. And I was wondering if you could tell me anything more about that. Are you talking about Montezuma? If that's how you say his name. (laughs) Perhaps I am. So the first time that chocolate appeared in Western written accounts was when Hernan Cortez came to the New World, which was in 1556. So we're talking really early conquerors, right? If Columbus sailed the ocean blue, 1492. This is really the first time that someone is pressing into Central America. So Hernan Cortez shows up on the coast. I think he first meets with the Totonacs, who are the big vanilla harvesting culture. And again, this is part of the chocolate trade. And they're like, who's in charge? And the Totonacs, they just kind of pointed west. And they were like, all right, great, see you all later. And so they go to Tenochtitlan, the city in the middle of the lake. And so they go, they march to Tenochtitlan, and they get on some boats, and, you know, they eventually conquer it, and that's pretty sad. But they go to Moctezuma's court, and they witness him drinking, at least by their accounts, hundreds of cups of chocolate. Can you imagine if you went to go talk to... He was Obama is like fuck. Obama's like, let's hang out. And you go to the White House, and Obama just has, like, hundreds of, like, Starbucks hot chocolate cups just <laughs> scattered around his office. But we don't know. And he's just throwing them back, throwing back hot chocolate after hot chocolate. And you're like, I'd love to talk about some business. But he's like, I apologize, but I have hundreds of things of hot chocolate that I need to eat today i i mean we'll start it all again tomorrow because i'm so rich because i can literally drink hundreds of thousands of dollars of pure money clearly made an impression on on that if they wrote it down but it it was also at the end of i believe a luxurious meal it was kind of like his after dinner drink was 500 cups of hot chocolate to be fair we don't know how big the cups were (laughs) they didn't take note of how large these cups still, were. That's still, it seems like a good time. And they all, someone had to froth all of those and make them perfect. I mean, he was a very, very rich man, Montezuma. However, they imprisoned him at that point in his house and then took over his kingdom. And at that point, the New World got colonized. And so people within the next, very quickly, shockingly quickly, people started bringing their families over. Missionaries came over and women came over. And they were hiring local women as housekeepers. And that's how the beverage was introduced into colonial culture, because local women were making it in Western homes. 
And the thing that I think is like so stereotypical, did you hear about that, that thing on Jeopardy where they had a category called What Women Want? No. <laughs> Jeopardy had a category called What Women Want, and it was like, what women want for 100 for their husbands to take the, the Bissell out of the fridge, which is this sort of equipment, out of the closet. It's this sort of equipment, yeah. And then it would be a picture of like the bear from Sleepy Time Tea or for one of these to fit made by Levi since 1903. So it was all like... Wow. Shocking, right? God bless so Jeopardy. not helping women's lib either. Apparently men in colonial Mesoamerica liked chocolate, but women were quote-unquote crazy for it <laughs> like it just some things never change oh ladies please so women just loved chocolate in the middle of the 16th century and brought it back to spain because that's who was colonizing mesoamerica and the drink became very trendy amongst the noble class who had added a ton of sugar and cinnamon and nutmeg and invented all of these accessories like moyanillos and silver wooden-headed chocolate pots and cups and saucers that you drank it out of and it was all became very complicated and you had to buy a lot of stuff because you were noble they added milk and eggs too so it became very frothy and very decadent and they made all kinds of bread and cookies dishes alongside of it to but it still it. tasted like sand it was still gritty and greasy is how it was <clears throat> described but closer to how we have it today but we lacked all the kind of complicated processing techniques that you're going to go into mm -hmm. but i think what was really key the people the reason it really appealed with people even though it still was kind of bitter and it was still kind of gritty it wasn't smooth i think was the key it was right. sweet yeah. it was flavorful but the reason people liked it because it introduced to europe the pleasure of alkaloid consumption and alkaloids other alkaloids another alkaloid you might be more familiar with is caffeine or morphine or morphine as well or morphine as well but Chocolate was the first caffeinated drink that Europeans were drinking. Chocolate was introduced to Europe before coffee or tea. So it was the, it predated coffee and tea and it opened the door for these other caffeinated drinks. And that's why it really became so popular in Europe. So when I go to the coffee house, when yeah. I get hot chocolate from them, yeah. and they look at me and they think, you're a baby, right. you're a dummy. Are you five? Why, why <laughs> are you getting hot chocolate? I can say to them, it's the original alkaloid, friend. Yeah. It's the original get jacked up thing. It's like a proto-cocaine, basically. Well, it's a proto-coffee. Cocaine is also an alkaloid. Yeah, so... Cocaine is also an alkaloid, and people also enjoyed it at the same time they were enjoying tea and coffee. But now we're getting complicated. I'm Chocolate also is cocaine, basically. I mean, look at all these changing opinions. Now, if you go and order a hot chocolate from Starbucks today, they're like, here you go, sweet little baby. Enjoy your hot chocolate. However, if this were the 18th century, we tried to go to a coffee house, they would assume that I was a prostitute. And you would be very manly for ordering our hot chocolate. Yeah. More power to me, going yep. back in time. Right, and you would go bid on your stocks, and I would go either be sad because I couldn't go to the coffee house because it was men only, or I guess I would give handies in an alley because oh. I'm a prostitute. All right, so what? <laughs> what? It's the truth about the 18th else? century, isn't what it? What else? We're talking about chocolate. That's what I've realized from drinking historic chocolate. And also it tastes way better now regardless of anything else. Texturally, I think, is the biggest thing. Absolutely. So how do we get there? Well, all right. So chocolate is made out of something called chocolate liquor. And you're like, all right, so cocoa is basically cocaine. It's basically heroin. It's basically caffeine. It's all these amazing things. But it turns out that chocolate liquor has nothing to do with liquor. It just means that it's a, it's a substance. It's a liquid. It is what it is. So chocolate liquor is simply... Inside of your, your cacao pod, your ground-up cocoa, you end up having two substances. You have your, basically what we know as cocoa powder, and then you have your cocoa butter. The cocoa butter is just the fat, and the cocoa powder is just the solid. And so everything that is chocolate, everything that is the science of chocolate, everything that is the creation of chocolate as a confection is somehow manipulating those two parts of the chocolate liquor 
the fat and the solid to somehow turn it into a magic tasty treat mm. because it probably doesn't taste very good just right off the bean so the most magic part of this is the butter the cocoa butter is what's important i mean the cocoa solids taste like chocolate i guess that's pretty important have you ever had a raw cocoa bean i haven't actually no if they're quite bitter i think is the most significant part mm. about it they taste yeah just very very bitter in a way that you yeah you can add sugar in but it obviously doesn't quite counteract that too because right. they're quite acidic mm -hmm. naturally it's fine we'll take that acid out later okay uh so right now we have the solids which taste like slightly gross bitter chocolate um and on the other hand we have cocoa butter so cocoa butter is made out of magic because it has a melting point of between 90 and 93 degrees Fahrenheit, which means if melts you... Melts in your mouth. Melts in your mouth, but where does it not melt? Your hands. Your hands, yes. So, not to be confused with M&Ms. M&Ms are not just cocoa butter chilling out. Candy shell. Candy shell, yeah, that's a secret. That has something to do with maybe the Spanish Civil War. But cocoa butter is magic because you can handle it and then you can put it in your mouth and it will melt and it will be beautiful and the mouthfeel will be incredible and you will be eating a delicious treat. Because <laughs> if you've ever had to eat, I don't know, what's a fat, like lard? Like if you put lard in your mouth and tried to chew on it or pig fat or something, it wouldn't be a good time, right? No, and if you tried to hold vegetable oil in your hand, it would just go all over the place. So cocoa butter is the best fat in the world, more or less. So, the thing is that for most all of history, every single chocolate was dark chocolate. Mm. And it wasn't called dark chocolate, it was called chocolate because it was the only kind of chocolate that exists. And really in Europe these days still, dark chocolate is just considered chocolate because mm. milk chocolate is its own thing and some people hate it and blah 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 blah. But the idea was that when chocolate was in a bar form, it wasn't sweetened too much. And it was more uh, a medicinal tonic. Because, I mean, it tastes bitter. And anything that tastes bitter, if you're in Europe in the blah, blah, blah century, you will just assume that it is good for you and you will eat it as a medicine. One of the oldest chocolatiers who has an outpost in New York City was um, Marie Antoinette's uh, pharmacist. And so he started making her medicines in these little chocolate wafers. Yeah. And she was really into it because you can imagine her being really into it. And that's kind of how chocolate wafers, chocolate little confections got started. And one of the most famous, question mark, uh, ingredients that would go into those wafers was Iceland moss. Hmm. Which I believe may have simply been a moss from Iceland. And then they're like, this tastes gross too, let us put it with some chocolate, which also doesn't taste very good because we don't really sweeten it, and then we'll feed you these grainy little wafers, and you'll be so healthy for forever. And she was like, this is divine. <laughs> yeah, everyone loved it, except mm -hmm. it, it was gross. Mm -hmm. So the problem throughout all this time was that even once you ground up the cocoa to be very very fine it still tasted gritty till still tasted sandy it never became like a thick luscious kind of like when you think of melty chocolate or when you think of what's that stuff that you put in your milk chocolate milk chocolate not you put it in milk, you put it in milk <laughs> and it turns into milk chocolate anyway when you think Nesquik? of chocolate Nez, uh, what's, what do you put on your ice cream sundaes? Hershey syrup. Hershey syrup. When do you think of Hershey syrup? That is the opposite of what, I mean, granted, Hershey that's syrup didn't syrup. exist. Yeah, there are plenty of reasons why it's so different. But that's what I think of when I think of chocolate. I think of something that is smooth and you just cover your tongue in it and you're having a real good time. But they weren't able to kind of make that sort of emulsion of fats and solids until the late 1800s. So... What happened was uh, you would have a machine and it would grind up your cocoa and then you would, you know, you put it in your wafers, uh, you put it in a liquid. And this one guy, he just forgot that he turned his machine on and he walked away for, let's say, overnight or a couple days 
And then he comes back and he thinks, oh no, I left my grinding machine on for days. I've wasted so much energy. Everything's sad. I'm sure the chocolate is ruined. And then he tasted the chocolate and it was divine. And it was no longer grainy. It was no longer sandy. It was silky smooth. And I'm sure it was still terrible and bitter because there was no sugar in it at that time. But what had happened, uh, no one knew for the longest time, uh, and somewhat recently, they've done analysis on this process, which is called conching. And it's the process, they still do it today, of basically grinding chocolate for hours and hours and hours and hours after the point where it should be completely ground. Uh, but a chemical reaction happens that releases acids into the air. Acetic acid is released from the cocoa bean as well as water. And so when the water content drops and the acid content drops, it allows the cocoa to emulsify in the butter. Whereas previously, the acid mm. and the water were getting in the way of the process. And so apparently, if you just leave it out mixing for days, you will end up with a glorious, glorious chocolate. So the longer you do that, the lower the acid content? Yeah, the lower the acid content. And then what ends up happening is these days they add, say, soy lecithin to it at the very, very end. And it really lets it emulsify much more and it gets much smoother. Because I remember there's something then. about Mass Brothers chocolate here in Brooklyn mm -hmm. that their chocolate is more acidic. We had, what, like seven or eight different chocolates yeah. beyond the Mast Brothers. When you hit the Mass Brothers, it is like biting into a lemon. Something with their conching process, but I don't remember what it is They now. probably just don't conch as long. That really would make they sense. They conch it, and it's more acidic. Yeah. So, the man who did that, his name was Rodolph Lint of mm. the Lint mm -hmm. Chocolate Company now. And so, what starts happening in the late 1800s and early 1900s is all these people start adding technical improvements to chocolate and basically every single one of them has a last name that is famous mm -hmm. in terms of being a chocolate company because it was very much an arms race back then and if you could figure out the one secret to make smooth chocolate or the one secret to make milk chocolate or the one secret to you know make your mint chocolate you would have all the customers and you would have all the money and then you'd be able to do whatever you wanted and you would still be famous today so what happened was after Lint was able to conch the chocolate, prior to that, chocolate drinks had really been the main way of consuming chocolate or those tiny, tiny wafers that were meant to be medicinal. But once you could create a smooth chocolate in a solid form, chocolate bars suddenly became popular. So beginning in, let's say, the 1880s is really the advent of the chocolate bar and the advent of chocolate as being a solid treat that you could eat and have a good time with. And so if we go back a couple years, milk chocolate was not invented until 1876. There was a man named Daniel Peter, who was originally a candle maker, but then oil lamps became popular and it completely destroyed his candle making business. Hmm. So he said, all right, I have to do something else. I have to make milk chocolate, as he did. I'm sorry, I'm just really obsessed with that, <laughs> that idea now. He was like, I make candles. Now milk chocolate time. Yeah. If you oil lamps, you ruin everything. Technology and the kids with the oil lamps, my business is ruined. Right? It's very sad. Yeah. I, don't I feel know. like he you had still, kids to feed too. You still see that today with different businesses going out of business. But, but they, it happened all the way back two hundred years ago with candles and oil lamps. Oh, absolutely. That's hysterical. <laughs> You're, I'm not gonna tell Daniel Peter that you said that. What happened was he got kicked out of the candle making business and he was like, ugh, I'm going to make some milk chocolate. The thing was, literally everyone in Europe was attempting to make milk chocolate. The problem was that when you put milk into chocolate, what happens when you leave milk out like on the countertop for a while? So it's going to spoil. So yeah. you're not going to have a product that's going to have a lot of shelf life. Yeah, so no shelf life and it's very thin, not too milky. Can I ask you this? Yeah, go. What was the deal? Like... Chocolate was really popular. This was big business. Everyone was trying to get in. Like everyone was into chocolate in Europe. Yes? Question mark. Mm. It it was a booming industry in which everyone was trying to get a technical leg up on everyone else. What what time period is this now? Late eighteen hundreds. Where were the Americans in this game? Were we kind of like not? We don't show up until later, but we'll get to Hershey in about 
it was fun. But pretty much all of the technological magic came from Europe, and then Hershey invented some his own method of milk chocolate in the United States, and everyone's like, is your method to use cheap, spoiled milk? And he was like, no, no, no that's not... That that's it just it tastes a little bit tangy just because that's the way that my process works and everyone's like I think that you're using spoiled milk because it's cheaper so you can cut everyone else's prices hmm. and he said that wasn't true. Interestingly, from what I know about recipes from this time, I can't really think like the 1880s. I can't really think of chocolate recipes appearing. Maybe by the 18 90s, you start seeing Dutch processed cocoa appearing mm -hmm. and chocolate chips and and devil's food cake. I really feel like early 20th century. So it's interesting for being as chocolate obsessed as we are now. We're not so into chocolate in the 19th century. Right. I guess not. I mean, maybe it was more expensive. Maybe it was something being made in Europe. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, go on. Right. So if there is one kind of milk that is less milky and less prone to spoilage, than other kinds of milk. Well, what would you say this milk might be? <laughs> I mean, I was going to say sweet and condensed milk because you know that's my favorite kind of milk. Why don't you just say... Sweet and condensed milk? Well, I believe no. it might just be condensed milk. Condensed is milk. it always sweetened? Usually, usually it is because... No, 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 I guess not because there can just be condensed milk. But I was going to say dry milk. Oh, like, no. All it wasn't... the way. So they okay. do dry milk now when making chocolate uh, mm. to get protein content up sort of like ice cream um, but back then what happened was our good friend daniel peter ex-candle maker mm -hmm. he had a friend named henry shall we say uh, did you make that up <laughs> no his henri nestle oh so, Nestle. yes whose original name was actually heinrich nestle and he can when he he was in oh, he's Swiss. living he's in Swiss but he moved to the Swiss or the French speaking the part German of Switzerland the Swiss. so he had and he to Frenchify just, his name okay you switched it up a little bit yeah and okay. so that's where Nestle came from was huh. that he had created condensed milk and I believe Daniel Peters knew of him because Peters got milk from him when mm. his baby daughter was sick and then condensed milk was good to feed a baby and he's like. If it's good for a baby, why can't we put it in chocolate? And that is how milk chocolate got made, was Nestle originally was in the condensed milk business. Ex-candle maker shows up on his doorstep, says, let's make some chocolate. And so they did. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I um, literally cannot keep sweet and condensed milk in my house because I will just punch a hole in it and drink it from the can. So you're disgusting. Uh, but thinking... <laughs> Talking of other things that are disgusting, going back a little bit further, I don't know why all of this is in reverse chronological order. 1866, milk mint chocolate was invented. So milk chocolate was in 1876. Mint chocolate was 10 years earlier. The texture of a chocolate bar was terrible. Tasted like sand. Mm. So what confectioners did was they would whip sugar with mint mm. in order to get a nice fluffy inside and then coat that in chocolate and then sell that to people so you didn't sure. have to bite through like a big whole terrible mm. bar of sand instead it was like a light sandy coating with delicious mint filling mint filling yeah. and then nestle and peter the candle maker creamy milk chocolate yes and then three years later conching is invented so chocolate as a solid form was here to stay oh so we had milk chocolate before we had only by three years though. only by three years and those processes were combined and so we had then we had creamy milk chocolate yeah and but all of this was trade secrets back then um it was a, a really big like any industry and people would hire i believe later on um Hershey hired someone from another chocolate company in order to recreate milk chocolate. And the guy worked for months and months and took tons of money from Hershey. And then at the end, he was like, oh, just kidding. I didn't really know how to do this at all. Sucks to be you. And Hershey just wasted a ton of money on these fake trade secrets. Is that what we're going to talk about now? Because Hershey kind of stresses me out. Well, I think I'm going to finish my trifecta of kinds of chocolate. It's not even trifecta since I added that other chocolate. What is uh, the worst kind of chocolate? The answer is white, white chocolate. chocolate. White chocolate is garbage. It is garbage. But the question is, 
if milk chocolate was invented in 1876 and dark chocolate was invented infinite number of years ago 3,000 years ago and mint chocolate was invented in 1866 when was white chocolate invented oh really i guess i'm kind of cheating a little bit i think but like in the 20th century here's a secret i can say 2002 is when white chocolate was invented Mm. and you say that's bullshit and i say well according to the fda white chocolate was not chocolate according to the fda until 2002 and the reason is does white chocolate taste like chocolate no i mean that shit's not food that shit's in my lotion that's making my skin soft so it is food a but b yes the difference between white chocolate and real chocolate shall we say is cocoa solids Mm. white chocolate is basically just made out of cocoa butter Mm -hmm. and no cocoa solids whereas everything else is flush full of cocoa solids so the idea is that before 2002 white chocolate was known as summer confection which is basically anytime you take a fat and a sugar and you whip them together so if i made like a fondant icing Mm. that was the same category as white chocolate you know what else is a shitty food what fondant icing stop putting that in your wedding cakes nobody wants to eat it it's so decorative and good i don't care what it looks like if i'm eating your wedding cake i want it to taste good dear every future wedding stop feeding me wedding cakes with fondant icing you're rough am i really it's not for eating it's for looking then you peel it off (laughs) exactly it's like an orange you You know what you know what I love an orange, yes. Good. So, if the FDA decided that white chocolate wasn't chocolate in 2002, what other crazy rules exist? I'll tell you a lot of fucking crazy rules. I'm looking at a chart right now of all of the different kinds of chocolate in Europe. And it has 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 different kinds of chocolate in it. Everything from milk chocolate vermicelli to cream chocolate to chocolate a la taza to milk chocolate. There's a ton. In America, we have pretty much milk chocolate, sweet chocolate, semi-sweet or bittersweet, aka dark, and white chocolate. And white chocolate is garbage, as we all talked about. So the big thing when dealing with chocolate is... When you're going to categorize it, you categorize it by the total dry cocoa solids or the cocoa butter amount. If you put those two together, you end up having the chocolate liquor, as we talked about in the very beginning. So in the USA, in order to have milk chocolate, all you need is it to be 10% chocolate liquor. That is basically no dry cocoa solids. The rest is just that milk is and no- sugar and soy lecithin. What the hell you want to put in there, you water. put the hell in it. Uh, even dark chocolate, minimum 35% chocolate liquor. Whereas if we go into Europe, in order to be chocolate in Europe, it must be 35% dry cocoa solids and over 18% cocoa butter which means we're talking uh, about 55% chocolate liquor to simply be called chocolate so you in would, Europe. You would go buy the imported chocolate. You would not buy American-made chocolate. American-made chocolate can taste delicious, though. That's the thing. But not Hershey's chocolate. Here's the thing. So Hershey's uses something called the Hershey process. Hershey had a few confectionery businesses in his life, and he failed at all of them until he hit on a recipe for making caramels. Hmm. It's very successful. He took that money and he invested it in a chocolate company. So he copied everything from Europe. He hired people from Europe in order to do the manufacturing and create all his recipes. And like I said before, there's the idea that no one was sharing how to make milk chocolate. No one was kind of letting that cat out of the bag. It was a trade secret. And suddenly Hershey began producing it, but it was kind of sour in a way that no one else's chocolate was sour. So some people say it was a result of like some unique fancy process that he invented. And then some people said he was just using 
spoiled milk because he had failed so many times that he just wanted to cut as many corners as possible. So the thing is that the tanginess in Hershey's is a compound called butyric acid. Now, butyric acid's claim to fame, I guess, is being the smell of vomit and the tanginess of vomit. And if there's one place where you're gonna vomit, it's probably on a roller coaster, which you can go on at Hershey Park. So, like how I tied all that together? Mm -hmm. So, in England, all the chocolate companies were run by Quakers. And all those Quakers had awesome company towns where everyone lived and everyone shopped and everyone basically had their whole lives. And it was centered around this chocolate company. And so Hershey's like, yeah, yeah, I'll do that too. It'll be cool. We'll do it in America. So he basically built a company town. He built a theme park so that people could go hang out there on the weekends. And it was... I don't know, he became very successful making a very, very cheap kind of chocolate that could compete with the European chocolate because it had so much less chocolate in it. What can you do? Did people like his chocolate? It was cheap. Come on. Nickel. Yeah. Right? It's like penny candies. It's there. You'll eat anything if it's cheap enough. Will I? Absolutely. <laughs> well, speaking, here's the thing. You talk a lot, you talk a big game about not liking things made from inferior chocolates, mm. such as Hershey's chocolate. So I'm going to read a couple descriptions of chocolate products mm. that we all love to eat. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to talk about them. Mm. So Mr. Goodbar, I don't know if you've ever had a Mr. Goodbar. I actually, out of all the Hershey's chocolates, it's my favorite. Well, if we were to describe it, you might describe it as the perfect crunchy blend of freshly roasted peanuts and chocolate candy. Mm -hmm. Sounds pretty good. Chocolate candy. How about Thin Mints? Everyone's favorite Girl Scout cookie. I hate mint, as you know. Crisp wafers covered in chocolatey coating made with natural oil of peppermint. So the big secret of chocolate candy labeling is it's all made up of illusions and trickery. And everyone, every single word that they say that is not simply the word chocolate is a trick saying this is not chocolate. Yeah, I noticed Mr. Goodbar was not described as chocolate. They didn't just stop there. They it's actually chocolate candy. Chocolate candy. And Thin Mints have a chocolatey coating. Yeah. Yeah, so what happens is cocoa butter... Like I said, melts at like 90 to 93 degrees and it melts in your mouth and it's wonderful. But it's also very temperamental and it's also very expensive. So what happens is if you take out the cocoa butter and use vegetable oil instead, then you can kind of say, hey, it's chocolatey. Hey, it's chocolate candy. It's fine. Mm -hmm. You'll love it. It still has some, you know, cocoa solids in it, but it's not, it doesn't have the cocoa butter in it. So the thing is about cocoa butter being the most important part of chocolate, it is the number one most important part of white chocolate, right? Mm -hmm. But let's say we were going to look at a container of Giardelli Classic White Premium Baking Chips. The ingredient list would be sugar, partially hydrogenated vegetable oil, whole milk powder, non-fat milk powder, whey, cream powder, cocoa butter, soy lecithin, and vanilla. Cocoa butter is the third to last thing on that list. Someone actually filed a class action lawsuit in 2013 saying that classic white chocolate chips by Giardelli are actually not chocolate. And then Giardelli says, well, we just called them classic white. We didn't actually call them classic white chocolate chips. So mm -hmm. if you look very closely at the bag, you see it does actually say Giardelli chocolate classic white as opposed to Giardelli chocolate, classic white chocolate chips. Mm -hmm. So, sneaky tricks from everybody. So, Cook's Illustrated <laughs> did a taste test uh -huh. where they bought many kinds of white chocolate chips mm -hmm. and they baked with them. Mm -hmm. Some of these chocolate chips were made with, you know, vegetable oil and some of them were made with cocoa butter. And it turns out that the ones made out of vegetable oil actually had a much better mouthfeel and were much less temperamental than the ones made with white chocolate. Because when you're dealing with cocoa butter, the fat in cocoa butter can be in six different crystalline forms. Mm. 
And when you, if you've heard of tempering, it's the process of heating mm -hmm. up chocolate so it melts and cooling it down a little bit, heating it up a little bit, and cooling it back down. It's just a very specific process in order to get all of the right kinds of crystals to form. Whereas if you're me and you're just trying to make some chocolate, you heat it until it melts and then you let it melt and then you like put it on a lollipop or whatever you do with chocolate. And you haven't tempered it correctly, so you have all these bad kind of crystals mm -hmm. in there. And the bad mm -hmm. ones are gritty, or they don't snap very well, or they melt at too low of a temperature. But if you're using the magic power of science to create a vegetable oil that acts like cocoa butter, you end up having a much nicer end product in terms of temperature because you don't have to deal with the magic of cocoa butter. All you have to do is make a vegetable oil that acts the same as cocoa butter but isn't as finicky. So pretty much chocolate has a shit ton of science that went into it. Mm. And I would argue though that our affection for a lot of these chocolates though, the American made chocolates, like most trashy American food, are actually more about flavor memory than they are quality. We love Hershey's and it's a weird flavor because we grew up eating Hershey's. The same reason we love McDonald's. So, eat what tastes good, mm. and if you want to eat a whole lot of very fancy chocolate, that's fine. Well, what's, your that favorite, what's your favorite type of chocolate? When I eat a whole lot of chocolate, I really like Mast Brothers, because it tastes mm. different from everyone else. So you like the acidity in Mast Brothers chocolate in Brooklyn? Generally, well, I usually eat Mast Brothers when I'm eating a lot of other chocolates in a taste test, and then mm. it always wins. Mast Brothers on its own doesn't taste as acidic because you don't have the point of comparison of all the other chocolates but basically i will eat anything that tastes sweet and has a good texture mm. so i'm not too picky when it comes to my chocolate do, do you, you have like, preferences do you like milk over dark oh i like dark chocolate you prefer yeah. dark chocolate. but everyone it's like liking red wine it's just like how everyone's supposed to be mm. i mean i'm still kind of a sucker for a milk chocolate over dark although that's changing gradually as i'm getting older but I will always pick something that has nuts in it. Hazelnuts are my favorite. Or toffee. I love chocolate that has toffee bits in it. That's my So favorite. you're just bastardizing chocolate all the way. Mm -hmm. Just give me American chocolate that's I mean, full no of a bunch of other ingredients. I'm supposed to like the 75% dark in the single piece. And I'm like, mm, it's so satisfying. Oh, chocolate. But I really just want it chock full of toffee. This has been the Master of Social Gastronomy Podcast. We'll see you in a couple weeks talking about more food and science and history and stuff. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.